You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic, and this is episode 104, and uh, and we don't have a lot of time today, so we want to really kick right into this one. We, right, Fran? We do. We do. And this is actually almost like a live episode of Grow, Read a Book. I know Tom has his segment where we uh, review books, but we're fortunate enough to have the author on of one of the books that we both read, so we're very excited about this. Yeah, and it was... Uh, I think something we've talked about on our podcast before, we've talked about it quite a bit on the show with a lot of the other guests. Um, the book really puts a lot of that in perspective. We say it's like a lonely world being in the colleges because you can see all the things that are going wrong in the world. <laughs> and uh, this highlights a lot of that stuff. It and, really um, does. And really puts it in in uh, uh, perspective, I guess, is one way to put it. But without getting too far in the weeds and Russ rambling on forever, I want to introduce the author of this book, uh, Oliver Millman, um, who is an environmental uh, correspondent for The Guardian, uh, lives in New York City, and he's a, a British journalist as well. So, Oliver, why don't you give us a little bit of an intro into your book, The Insect Crisis? And who you are, if you could. Yeah, sure. Hi. It's, it's good to be with you both. Thank, thanks for having me on. No problem. Um, so, yeah, I'm as you mentioned, I'm, I'm from the UK. Uh, I've worked for The Guardian in um, Australia. And here now in the US for the last kind of seven years, writing about environmental topics, kind of overwhelmingly uh, things to do with kind of climate change and pollution and wildlife issues and stuff like that. And and I think um, I've always been drawn, like many environmental journalists, to the big kind of flashy things of our natural world, you know, the, the polar bears and the, um, you know, rhinos and uh, Amazon rainforests and Everglades and <laughs> things like that of our world. Um, so I think if, um, if somebody had told me a few years ago that uh, my first book would be writing about insects, I, I think I would have been quite surprised because I didn't really think about insects uh, that much um, in a kind of environmental conservation context. Like many of us, I think, don't really think about insects that much Um uh, but then a kind of a series of kind of research reports started coming out around 2017, 2018, 2019, showing these quite extraordinary declines in insect numbers. And I felt this was a story that wasn't really being told in a, in a kind of deep and nuanced way. I thought, you know, talking to the scientists who were saying this is, you know, perhaps the kind of biggest and yet quietest uh, conservation disaster unfolding in a world right now it was um it was important to tell that story so that's what i've set out to do in the book and the beginning of the book is it's actually extremely gripping and chilling uh, detailing the collapse of the world without insects and it's Mm -hmm. it's funny because one of the things that we discuss on the podcast all the time and, and tom has mentioned it is that as a kid we're always approached with all these animals that aren't local to us, like the cartoons are polar bears and, and things like that, but they don't really hit home, but it's what everyone knows and kind of loves and, and will take those causes on, but like the tigers and, but the insects affect all of us like worldwide. And, and the opening was very chilling. Did, how did that affect you? Even just writing that coming to terms with that did was, it, it's kind of, you can't unsee that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about ways to kind of open the book uh, and I thought well, I could just dive straight into the science and what it's telling us now and or, you know, some stories of some adventure of me kind of clambering over some mountains in Mexico looking for butterflies. Or I could uh, or I could just lay out why people should care, why, why, what's at stake. I mean, you can't, it's hard to kind of write about something like insects where a lot of people... Uh, are kind of grossed out by them or, or kind of are scared by them mm. um, to, to kind of talk about their disappearance in a way that invokes some sort of concern or, or, or caring or understanding. You need to show what's at stake. And I thought the kind of most vivid way of showing what was at stake here is to kind of envision this world, lay out this world or what 
things would be like if there were no insects at all. Um, and it is uh, it is a very grim place. It's not somewhere we'd want to live and it's not somewhere we'd be able to live. I mean, <laughs> the biologist D.O. Wilson, who passed away earlier this year, estimated we'd only last a couple of months. Um, it would be an extremely tough place to live. And, and, and you mentioned before the kind of um, the tigers and uh, these other kind of creatures. As terrible as it would be to lose those creatures from our world, and it would be a hideous crime to lose kind of tigers and rhinos and elephants, um, we, we wouldn't notice it as much in a purely selfish sense. It wouldn't cause the collapse of our food systems. It wouldn't cause, you know, forests and grasslands and other ecosystems to kind of wither and die. Um, that's what would happen if we lost insects. So we've got this kind of mismatched kind of importance that we, we lay upon different animals. We love tigers, but they don't do much for us in a really kind of mm-hmm. cold, kind of selfish way. Uh, insects do so much for us. They're probably the most important creatures in the world for, for us, uh, really. Um, and yet we consider them pointless or pests or annoying. So, yeah, that's what I was tempted to do with the opening of the book. I, I think at that point is uh, some of our listeners start to realize that as we talk a, a lot about native plants, obviously, and as we're losing biodiversity and the coevolution between insects and, and birds with, with native plants that – once you lose that plant biodiversity, you start to lose that insect biodiversity mm-hmm. and how that affects us. And, um, you know, and I think most of our – most people, you know, they know pollination mm-hmm. as far as, you know, a function of insects, but but they don't really know beyond that. And and you do a very good job in the book outlining some of these other numerous functions. Do you, do you mind going through some of those, like some of the things that you've listed? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're right. I mean, what, there's a million named species of insects in the world. And that's, you know, just the tip of the iceberg. There might be 5 million, 10 million, 15 million. We don't know. Um, But how many of those do we think fondly of or do we think has some sort of use? I mean, you know, bees, a couple of butterflies, we think quite pretty. That's kind of it. Yeah. Um, But the kind of of utilitarian uses of insects are kind of vast. We don't really think about them because they do a lot of this kind of background, kind of unglamorous work that we don't see or even like to think about. (laughs) If you think about decomposition of waste, so Mm -hmm. feces and dead bodies, I mean, blowflies, beetles, other insects do, you know, this incredible work to break down this this stuff that we would be, you know, caked in if it wasn't (laughs) if it wasn't for them. I mean, they break down and decompose all kinds of yucky things that, um, that, you know, until the bacteria can there to, to finally break it down, uh, <clears throat> which not only rids our uh, world of, um, you know, um, horrible things lying around, <clears throat> it also recycles nutrients through the soils, uh, through plants. So you have this kind of continual replenishing of our um, ecosystems, of our grasslands and forests and, and so on. Um, through that work by insects. So they do an important work of keeping um, the environment ticking over, really, in that sense. And they also, of course, are an important part of the food chain. They, uh, they you know, feed a vast number of other animals. So, you know, if you don't care about insects, fine, but maybe you care about amphibians. And a lot of people care about birds. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, evidence that birds are in decline in certain parts of the world where insect numbers are crashing. So... Um, there's this whole kind of series of uh, consequences that unfold when you when you start losing insects. Yeah, it was that was one of the things that really uh, struck me when you talked about the decomposition aspect of insects because we do overlook it. I overlooked it, um, and I just when I read that passage in your book, I flashed back to a video I saw of uh, a research study that actually took a, a deer carcass and put it in the woods and basically see how fast it would decompose. And it's the insect, you could see all the insect larvae kind of crawling around and gnawing away, but it was gone in a matter of like two or three weeks. Um, mm. And without that process, it's it's going to take months to, to achieve that with just fungi and bacteria and other things. So, no, that, that was just an eye-opening. And if you think about how many species that fed, yeah. Like how oh, many yeah. things it took care of in that mm-hmm. food web. It, it's just, well, nice. yeah, just when you really web, follow the web all the way out. Yeah, everything that all the larvae fed and the insects that 
grew uh, they grew into fed that's uh it's pretty impressive yeah it is and it's one of those things that you know we don't ever like to think about it oh yeah we definitely <laughs> no, and- it if it didn't happen mm-hmm. it's you know we see have examples of this happen all the time don't we with kind of climate change the impacts of climate change we take for granted the kind of stable world that we live in until it is then shaken up by a wildfire or a hurricane we take we take for granted the kind of products being in our stores until a pandemic hits and supply chains are disrupted we don't think about supply chains or you know stable environments really do we until they're not there and i think that's one of the important things to remember with insects you know they do all this work to keep our world uh, as we know it and and without them we would be thrown into you know a completely disordered place that we would uh, be uh, very unhappy to be in the the more entomologists we we speak to over the the years you know one of the common themes is we're really just starting to learn what we don't know there's so much because the the studies haven't been there or we're just really starting to to dive more into the same drogi at the uh, national bee laboratory mm-hmm. you know it what was saying that they, no one really had studied bees the way they they had started doing in the last 10 years and it's 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 pretty interesting but do you feel in who you've talked to and the research because you you've found some fantastic global research that has been done over the last few decades how how quickly is this issue accelerating um and do we even know how how bad it's become yeah i mean that's a great question and i think we don't know exactly how bad it is um or even you know if it's bad in every place in the world because we just haven't even surveyed all the mm-hmm. insects in the world so we don't know the population trends of them i mean up until fairly recently it seemed pointless to count insects or or, or chart the trends of their populations because what was the point i mean they seem to be everywhere you know why would you get the funding uh, for a research um, uh, operation to uh, track insect numbers over a number of years when you could go out and find cool new insects and name them after yourself. I mean, that would be, <laughs> that's what scientists have been doing for years. And, you know, that's, that was the kind of interesting and relevant thing to do. But um, just recently there's been some groups that have been looking at the data to see well, what has been happening. Cause anecdotally there seems to be fewer around and yeah, the, the, the research that has come out, the glimpses we do have into the insect world are quite amazing, really. I mean, uh, in Germany, they've lost three quarters of flying insects in their nature reserves since the Berlin Wall came down. Wow. Um, there's rain for the only rainforest in US territory, the El Yunque rainforest in uh, Puerto Rico. Um, this uh, entomologist from upstate New York, Brad Lister, went there in the 1970s and he conducted the experiments we put these uh, plates with um, sticky substances on them on the canopy floor and uh, sorry in the canopy and on the forest floor and they were covered in insects blackened by them he went back to do that a couple of years ago and there was just nothing there in this rainforest there was 98 percent down by biomass compared to them in the 1970s um denmark you, you, there was a similar de- decline you know one in four uh, bumblebee species in north america are, are facing extinction um, you know, you, you, butterfly numbers in the UK have halved in the last 50 years. I mean, you're seeing these kind of incredible declines um, in, in, in all these countries that are, are kind of surveying insects over a period of time. Um, and it's the rate of decline, is, I think, is the most startling thing. I mean, we, we may have lost kind of 95% of the world's tigers, for example, but we've done that over kind of 100 years, 150 years. We're talking about, you know, a near wipeout of insects in certain parts of the world just in the last few decades, you know, just since the time we were listening to CD-ROMs, we were, <laughs> we've, been, we've kind of lost, we've lost kind of 80, 90% of insects, which is quite amazing when you think about it. So the rate of decline, and, and sometimes it's to put it out kind of 1% to 2% of insects a year uh, worldwide as a global average we're losing, um, that's obviously unsustainable. If we're going to we're going to keep the world as we have it now, there will always be insects. Not all insects are going to die out. Yeah. Uh, they will outlast us on this planet. That's pretty. I think that's pretty certain. But the composition of them, the insects that we want to have around, are the ones that are suffering and we're losing. And uh, I think that should concern us all when we think about uh, pollination of food in particular, but also 
new medicines, the ecosystem services, all these other things that uh, insects provide us. So, yeah, it's it's a concerning place, and a lot of entomologists are quite happy to call it a crisis um, uh, and, and say we're we're in a very uh, perilous position right now. One of one of the ways that I that this crisis is impacted obviously is is how we cover land with impervious service like we're we're decreasing habitat but and i know you mentioned in the book there's uh and i can't remember where there was an area that wasn't really impacted but they were still seeing a significant incline in insects and i always think about uh when we spoke with dr enrique sala uh enrique sala from national geographic talking about predators need, needing to be able to travel. So even if one area isn't impacted, if there's less area for it to travel, it still impacts it as a whole mm-hmm. because they need to be able to to move when their pre- their predators are in low numbers. So it's mm-hmm. – um, how, how much of the issue do you feel is just humans human expansion? Yeah, I mean that's a big part of it. I mean we've got – cut down a third of the world's trees since the industrial age um, started in the 18th century, sorry, 19th century. Um, We've converted huge tracts of forest and grassland and wildflower meadows that uh, insects love and other species, of course, um, into monocultural farmland, uh, just filled with one crop, doused in pesticides, which kill uh, all sorts of insects. Um, and as well as kind of urban sprawl, of course, highways, industrial areas. I mean, we've, yeah, we've we've changed the world in our own image in a way that is um, horrendous for insects. And, and an important point of that, as you mentioned, is connectivity. I mean, insects can survive in kind of fringe areas. That's why you kind of see them in kind of grasses by highways or, you know, railway tracks or abandoned houses. You see kind of you know, when, when pl- plants, I mean, weed is a subjective term, isn't it? We just see, <laughs> think it's a plant that's in the wrong place. <laughs> but for insect, that's, a, <clears throat> that's food, that's shelter. They like a kind of disordered kind of variety, a jumble of vegetation to survive on. And where those places are allowed to crop up, they, they kind of spring back. You saw that during the pandemic where, you know, um, grass cutting was kind of scaled back by some... Mm you know, local governments because um, uh, people were staying at home. And so once things are allowed to grow, you see the insects come back. But if it's not connected, if there's not a kind of pathway to other connected areas, then the insects there are isolated. They risk dying out. The gene pool obviously is smaller. So, yeah, we've um, we, we've created um, a, a very hostile environment, I would say, for insects all around. For for us even I, we we keep creating a more unnatural ecosystem, uh, than, more than anything, destroying right. natural and, and creating unnatural. Which I I don't even know if if scientists can even begin to explain what we need, like how many insects or what kind of population we need for a healthy ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's hard to kind of quantify quantify exactly. There is good work being done in uh, Europe, for example, of of encouraging farmers to put um, kind of wildflower borders uh, to their fields. So it's not just completely farmed with one crop right up to the edge and nothing else. Um, You have these kind of edges where you see the hedgerows or you have um, flowers. You can even, certain parts of the world, they're even planting kind of herbs and spices so it's an extra income stream for, for farmers. Um, uh, and then insects can flourish in that. And then importantly, if you have a network of them that are all connected throughout the landscape, you then have a kind of pathway uh, for insects to survive in. Uh, and it's also beneficial for, for farmers because they help eat the pests that um, farmers don't like. So therefore you can use less pesticides um, uh, and you have a more kind of vibrant, healthy environment. So there is a way... I mean, there is a way to, it'd be great if we kind of had broad kind of deep reform of farming practices and the way that we kind of live our lives and, uh, you know, regenerative agriculture and those kind of things would be great. But there is a way to kind of 
within the system we currently have to at least ameliorate some of the harm, to have some insect life at the edges that doesn't actually uh, detrimentally affect anyone but helps bring insects back a bit. I mean, we can do work within the kind of current paradigm we currently have, I'd say. Yeah, and it's uh, I know the, the Xerxes Society uh, pushes a lot of this, those same techniques in in the U.S. for uh, for farmers to just have a mm. – it's really not a big sacrifice to each individual farmer. Just giving a small buffer around each field uh, does wonders for your, your insect community. It also helps with so many other th- environmental services as well, like water filtration and, and cleaning that water. You're not getting the sediment runoff, but it really helps the insects uh, as well. So um, mm. I'm – but it's kind of it's getting those farmers to to join into that. Yeah. Um, incent- I know there's USDA programs to kind of incentivize some of that because it is an issue, and the communication may be the biggest hurdle uh, in getting that. How do you think we've been doing in communicating the the insect crisis to uh, people who m- might not know or might not care as much? Um, I, mean, I think I think it's gathering kind of steam. I mean, you've had that kind of media narrative in the last kind of couple of years of insect again, you know, insect apocalypse, that kind of thing. I mean, I think people have, in a kind of abstract way, grasped that there's an issue there, uh, and there's you know you see kind of these save the bees campaigns popping up uh, around the place, and you know they're problematic in some ways because they're based around honeybees, which are not you know. You know, not the thing we need to can be focus our, our efforts on saving, really. Um, but that you know, people understand. You know, when they think of bees, they think about you know a yellow and striped creature that makes honey, mm-hmm. lives in a hive. So it's a kind of starting point, I guess, for people to think about um, insects in that way. And I think uh, I think there is a kind of growing public understanding that um, something needs to be done. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the US, you have this kind of incredible citizen effort to help monarch butterflies, for example. People go to great efforts to plant milkweed and breed them in homes and, and do all kinds of things to help save them. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's lots of work being done to help try and help endangered uh, bumblebees in the US West as well. Um, in Europe, you saw this incredible referendum in Bavaria, a very conservative farming-centric part of Germany, a state of Germany that, the public referendum overwhelmingly uh, voted in favour of um, turning over a third of the land to organic farming, uh, scaling back pesticides, bringing back um, hedgerows and um, uh, and other wildflower borders. Um, so, you know, it shows that uh, a level of public alarm about this that is growing in, in, in various places around the world. And um, I think that will only start to grow. Uh, the, the question is, of course, will we act quick enough to avert, yeah. <laughs> avert the disaster? And I kind of worry that we're going down a similar path of climate change where we would know, knew for a while that things were uh, unravelling and yet we've been very slow to respond. Um, I hope we're a little bit quicker when it comes to insects. And that was another thing I, I really liked about your book is you talk about some of the potential flaws in that communication chain and um when when the headlines say it's an insect uh, armageddon and uh that that it's like the world's gonna end and then say oh we might lose 50 percent of our our uh our insects by 2030 and then 2030 comes and we only lost 20 percent people say it's it's a big win that we only only lost 20 percent when we were gonna lose 50 percent um and that might not be the case uh, I forget exactly where I was going with that question. No, but, <laughs> question, I, but, but at least we're having the conversation because yeah, of books like yours. And it's you know one of the great things you said earlier on in the conversation is just finding a common interest. This is something we talk about even on a local level if you're, you're speaking with your neighbor um, because they're spraying for mosquitoes. And, and how do you have that conversation? All right, you don't care about mosquitoes, but maybe you care about dragonflies. Maybe you care about bats. Mm-hmm. Um, and finding those ways to get people involved, even on a on a larger scale. Dr. Tallamy, I think, with what he's doing with Homegrown National Park is very similar right. to what you're mentioning with, with connecting to agriculture because of how much privately owned land there is, in, especially in the U.S. It's, you have to have those conversations. Otherwise, you can't make the changes needed, I believe. Yeah. I mean, one of the most startling things I found out through the research of the book is the the largest um, uh, irrigated farmed area 
of land in the US is lawn. Mm. I mean, it's three times the size of of the area set aside for corn in this country. Vast area of land uh, is given over to people's backyards, rolling lawns, just monocultural grass, clo- closely cut grass, which, I mean, aesthetically is what we've been told is the thing to have. And culturally, that's what we all aspire to. And if you have, you live in the suburbs and you have a kind of tall grassland front yard, you're going to get a knock on the door, aren't you, from the neighborhood association <laughs> saying, you know, this looks really scruffy and you're bringing down the tone and please cut it. And I've spoken to people who've had their neighbors actually cut their law uh, for them without their permission because they uh, because they consider it to be uh, hideous. And um, that that's the kind of cultural mindset we are in. But uh, I mean, for insects, um, those places are, are deserts, really. I mean, there's nothing there for them, uh, especially when you start applying um, chemicals to, to your lawns. You, you start killing off all kinds of life there. So, um, yeah, if we can if we can just let a little bit of the wild back in to our lives, I feel that would be highly beneficial to them, but also to us. I mean, I find I find those areas when you, you go into those areas where the grass is a bit torn, you've got all kind of different kind of plants there, and you know it's far more interesting. It's far more vibrant. You can see the insects, you can hear them. It's a kind of thrumming place. Uh, of life and I don't know I find that far more interesting personally than um, just another big expansive lawn um, if we could just let a little bit of that back into our lives I feel that would be uh, that'd be very beneficial and that that's one of the biggest things we preach you don't have to convert your entire lawn to a meadow but if you can right. increase it by five square feet ten square feet and put some native plants in there that would be or even cut your ties to chemical dependency for your lawn if, if you think about how many Houses have been built in the last 50 years and how much more lawn has been created and how how much ecosystem has been destroyed. Um, along with that comes the chemical dependency. How, how big of a role do you think chemicals have played between agriculture and turf in this insect crisis? Yeah, I mean it's huge. I mean I feel uh, the makers of chemicals have done a very good job in convincing people that their product is essential to um, – uh, stop pests to 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 keep the land looking exactly as you want it to be. I mean, the the marketing to farmers in particular has been very strong to the point that you know neonicotinoids, this class of chemicals used uh, liberally across uh, American farmland, is essential to the point that they're now routinely sold seeds with the chemicals coated on on them. So it's not just spraying chemicals everywhere. It's you, you have the chemicals there from the very get-go from uh, the seed form onwards and um, that's been you know hugely impactful in terms of to the toxicity of land in the US uh, and the, they don't stay in the same place either I mean they're water soluble so as soon as it rains they leach into soils into waterways that's where you start seeing these kind of impacts to insects and other other creatures uh, and frustratingly for many entomologists, they don't actually do the job very well. The peak of the pesticide doesn't meet, match the peak of the pest. You yeah. plant early in the season, they wash away, and then by summer when the pests arrive, most of the pesticide is gone. So, um, you know, you, you're killing, you know, trillions of beneficial insects, the ones we want around, um, in you know, for, for not great returns um, in terms of yield or crop. Um, and in our backyards, I kind of feel we are treating, over-treating um, areas of lawn that would actually benefit from being, from, from stepping back a bit to seeing what would what would happen. Again, like you're saying, it doesn't have to be all of your lawn because um, that would seem a kind of culturally radical thing to do. But you know, just a portion of it would be would be nice to be set aside to. Um, to let some native flowers grow and, and see what happens. Yeah, even uh, you. One of the the biggest things uh, when I moved in, what my fiance was getting her to not rake the leaves up. Our backyard is is surrounded by by woods, and uh, right. she was concerned about the turf. And we left them this year, and she was delighted by the amount of bird activity, looking for insects, and 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 how that helped. But also impressed with 
how good the lawn still looked even though it was covered with leaves all winter. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's just breaking that perception. Everyone thinks you have to do this if you want it to look a certain way or if you you have to do this if you want that. And it's not necessarily the case. It's just what we're programmed yeah. to do over years that, and you don't that, question it. It's like we treat our yard like an outdoor version of our carpet in our <laughs> yeah. don't we? We like like, oh my goodness, it's got um blossom on it. Or, or some leaves have blown down there. It's like, yeah, it's an outdoor environment. It's, <laughs> it's dynamic. It's meant to kind of do this. And it's actually kind of, you know, it's beneficial for all the creatures there that, that survive on it. There, there is a dynamic environment. It's not something you can manicure to death. Exactly. And you can, but it's just quite sterile and boring, I feel. Um, leaf, I mean, leaf blowers are something that fascinate me. Especially the the, the gasoline powered ones. The, the idea that you would <laughs> you need this contraption to blow leaves around and and it creates an enormous noise, like a deafening noise, and pumps out toxic fumes, adds to you know contributes to climate change, uh, air pollution. Uh, you know, requires like endless amounts of gasoline fuel to be pretty <laughs> incredible. It's one of those things I think we'll look back on in a few years' time and go, okay, why why did we why did we do that? Um, but I mean, Germany's got actually banning them. Um, I wonder if that will happen here. Maybe maybe not. We're but, starting. Um, to, yeah, we're starting to see that here actually in New Jersey. I think they're talking uh, about their proposed ban already. And yeah. in certain towns, they are uh, banned to a certain extent. But uh, right. yeah, for New Jersey, there's a, a state potential state law proposed bill that's um, oh, yeah. banning to, leaf blowers. To, yeah, slowly phase out gas leaf blowers and and promote uh, electric leaf blowers. You got electric ones, yeah. yeah. But uh, but still, it's it's still crazy to think. I was I was going through. Um, I was homesick the other day, and and uh, I was watching some YouTube videos and the stuff that like might be in an old house that what it was used for. And I'm like, man, so a lot, so many of things that we take for granted that is, have been around forever in our minds are really common practices. Something that popped up in like the 50s, 60s, sometimes even like the 70s, and um, we've just adopted them as saying, oh, we've been doing this forever. Yeah. Uh, mm. How do we break some of those those barriers? I guess and realize, oh no, we can change and, and improve and and have a long lawn or not blow our leaves and those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of $64 million. <laughs> how, we, how we enact change, um, cultural change. I mean, you see, you, I mean, sometimes you see it's like going bankrupt, isn't it? So you go, go slowly and then very quickly. Um, and, and you could see that happening here in that, you know, there is some kind of cultural shift towards understanding the importance of insects. And, and suddenly you see insects on the menu in certain restaurants to eat them. So, okay, we can view them in that way um, as food. Um, we can understand their importance to, you know, medicines and other aspects of our lives. I mean, I think it's a kind of dawning realisation. Um, but, uh, I mean, realistically, it'll probably be a kind of breakdown of the services they provide that will really spur us to to think about that. I mean, the United Nations has warned there's a food security crisis coming uh, in the midpoint of this century because there's a falling amount of pollination in the world at a time when the global population is growing. Um, so there's more mouths to feed and we've got less pollination to, to provide the food for that. So I kind of I kind of worry that we'll we'll take a kind of a shock like that to, um, to to make us really appreciate them. But, um, I mean, there's lots of things we can do. I mean, uh, there's the role for the media, children's books, what we teach children. I mean, you speak to entomologists who do outreach at schools. They, kindergartners love insects. They think they're really cool because they've yeah. got these amazing abilities. You go to high school, they think they're gross. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> something's happened between the ages of, you know, four and 16 or whatever to, 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 to make, to make kids think that insects are. Yeah. Well, I think you, know, you lose your connection you, as yeah. a kid. I remember having caterpillars, like letting them crawl up my hands and inchworms and, and then you lose that interaction 
And then right. all of a sudden, as a teenager, you see things like a maggot infestation. And yeah, you're like, yeah. oh, I, don't, I want no part yeah. of that. It's funny. I just gave a presentation to a middle school uh, two, three weeks ago. I got a stack of cards on my desk <laughs> that they all dropped off the other day. But um, I, and it was mixed. You had some kids who were really into the insects and others were like, oh, that's gross. And uh, so it's interesting because it was like that middle ground in between the elementary yeah. school. So some had already hit that transition where they don't like insects anymore. But, yeah, that's that's fascinating. <laughs> But there's in the in the book there's you, you do outline some of the other factors in this insect decline and and obviously we don't have the time to go into all of that which is great because we want our listeners to to buy the book and read about it and one of the one of the factors though I we did want to touch on before we had to go was just the part that maybe misplaced or invasive plant species play in this everyone has had as especially here in the states uh, with with you know, when the, when the settlers came over, bringing plants with them that they loved, uh, that they were familiar with, and invasive plants are a huge problem. And they've been brought over for different reasons, for erosion control, things like that. As this gets worse, I know Hawaii. They say there's one of the islands. There's no native flora left. It's it's all invasive, and they saw a massive drop in biodiversity and wildlife and insects. Is this becoming a larger problem, also? Yeah, it is. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's countless kind of invasive species on there in, in the US from kind of feral hog stage and carp to, um, you know, emerald ash borers and um, all kinds of things. Spotted lanternflies are, uh, you know, considered a men- menace, aren't they, in New Jersey, New York? And I saw one in Manhattan the other day. Uh, I actually saw a couple. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that is a that is an issue. Um uh, obviously, not all invasive species are disastrous. Some, some, some are you know pretty benign. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- I think that is. I mean, it's kind of another symptom of a kind of globalized world, isn't it? Of, of trade, um, uh, of moving things around. Uh, there's a piece in the book around um, the kind of murder hornets that have started to get a foothold in Washington State, British Columbia, um, and they they kill bees. They they be they're called murder hornets because they behead ahead uh, honeybees and so that's kind of caused a cause a concern i think you see the kind of most vigorous efforts to eradicate invasive species when they threaten some commercial agricultural enterprise and, and i think there's going to be lots of effort to um, combat the the hornets because they they attack bees that are used to pollinate various uh, various crops out out west i mean if there was a more holistic approach to um, that, that I think that would be that would be helpful rather than just focusing on the things that uh, are attacking our crops. I always find it interesting when when we talk about honeybees because there is a big industry for honey and there's a lot of money behind that. But again, it's it's an insect that's not even native to our country, but it's very romanticized uh, about mm. it. People think of honeybees before they think of the native bees. Yeah, yeah, we yeah <laughs> they, they are they are somebody. Somebody in the oh, I spoke to for the book said, "Well, it's a bit like um, focusing your efforts of bird cons- conservation on the chicken, save <laughs> 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 uh, the chicken." And I'm, I'm not anti-chicken, but I would I would say that you know there are all kinds of other incredible species out there that do lots of really important things that are kind of out of sight now of mines I mean ultimately honeybees have humans to look after them yeah. and they have to deal with disease like varroa mite uh, they have to de- deal with pesticide use like other bees habitat loss you know not much to eat they, they're kind of strapped onto trucks and carted around the country aren't they to perform these pollination tasks which is quite stressful for them so I'm not kind of downplaying the stresses that beekeepers have and honeybees have I mean they face real challenges but they they have humans to uh, replenish their numbers and uh, provide treatments to them. Bumblebees don't have any of that. Mason bees don't have any of that. I mean, they have, they're left to the mercy of, of whatever we've decided to kind of put in, out into the environment. And, um, they are often the ones doing a lot of the kind of unheralded pollination work um, that honeybees can't, aren't able to do. Uh, so, yeah, we should be thinking. We should be thinking more broadly when we think of bees, not just honeybees. I agree. So after outlying all this information, fantastic information, and Tom and I both love the book, 
Um, where do we go from here? What's what's the the next step? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think there has to be some kind of top level kind of regulation work that, that needs to be done. Um, you know, big ag is so powerful uh, in terms of its lobbying power in Congress, but you know, if you can somehow navigate that and get some kind of momentum behind laws around pesticide use, I mean, not blanket bans, but you know, proper sensible regulation of neonicotinoids. I mean, the European Union's banned the three worst. The US could. There was nothing stopping the EPA from doing that. Um, there should be some work around habitat protection, restoration. A lot of that can be done on a local level, of course. Um, you know, working with farmers, uh, you know, to find kind of win-win solutions for getting uh, habitat corridors that go through farmland, uh, bringing back wildflowers, um, bringing back uh, hedgerows, bringing back um, these kind of things that um, insects can thrive upon, creating these kind of urban oases of of um, of greenery too. I mean, I saw some of that in, in New York City on rooftops. Um, New York, I think, requires developers to to at least consider green roofs now, that would be a good step, I think, for for because they're they're incredible places. And once you once you're on one, uh, with all these in, the insects around and it's beautiful, you kind of you kind of think you stop thinking it's weird and you think why isn't every other roof like this? I mean, <laughs> we can, you could bring back these kind of little oases of 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 life, and then yeah, on a kind of individual level, yeah, let a bit of wildness back into your backyard if you have one. Um, you know, think about organic food a bit. Um, think about cutting back chemical use a bit. Um, yeah, just maybe keep keep in mind these things when you're making decisions around the home. Because I mean, it's not you know not going to solve the problem individually, but there's there are little things you can do to to help. And, and it goes twofold. If you increase insects, you're increasing overall biodiversity. Think of all the other things. If there's more insects, some of the things you love will benefit from that yeah. also. So uh, right. that's wonderful. Exactly. Tom, do you have any questions before we ask the last question? Um, I, I'm sure I do. Oh, yeah, this was a good one. Because you're a, a journalist, um, and I kind of mentioned this a little bit before, how a lot of the times when these topics get picked up, they have these really salacious headlines that they want people to read it is, is why, but uh, they can, mm. I don't want to say overblow the topic, but... Um, I don't want to even say exaggerate, but it may they may make it a little bit more salacious than than it mm. actually is. What's the balance as a journalist in having a headline that's going to attract clicks or readers or, or those kind of things, and actually conveying the right um, the proper message? I mean, that's a I mean, it's a great great question especially when you're dealing with something like this that has such nuance um which you can explore in a story but like you say a a headline has to has to um you know grab the attention Mm. um i mean you have to you can do i think you can live in both worlds and be kind of accurate while grabbing the attention um of readers uh i mean i know some entomologists don't like the term insect to get in for example it's kind of biblical language Uh, because we're not going to lose all insects. It's not, you know, complete wipeout. Uh, so that's not going to happen. But I think there are ways of kind of highlighting, maybe through quotes of entomologists or something like that in headlines to kind of show that this is a this is a kind of urgent problem um, that needs our attention. Uh, because otherwise, I think if you, if you just kind of um, give a kind of bland kind of reporting of... Uh, of of the scientific uh, literature, we're, we're just going to be quietly charting the demise of these things without yeah. Yeah. <laughs> agitating any kind of uh, change. So, yeah, it's a tricky balance. But, yeah, you've, you've got to always be accurate in these terms. I mean, I, I personally don't don't really like – I think the insect crisis as a title for the book was just about right. I wouldn't have wanted to call it Insectageddon or, or, or you know, the apocalypse or anything like that. I mean, I – I feel that's kind of it gets that's a bit too much hyperbole for me. Yeah. But crisis, I feel, is a is a kind of 
more of a kind of measured, reasonable thing to say about the situation we've kind of find we find ourselves. No, I think it sends the proper message, and then you grab the reader's attention with with that intro, uh, which is which is like I said, very chilling. But it's it's a fantastic read for our listeners. Please go out and pick up this book. You know, like I mentioned, there's a lot of other factors that are talked about, like climate change and water pollution, and and so much fantastic information. Uh, that if if this is something that concerns you, even if it isn't, it it probably should, and and we really recommend our our readers. And we'll put a link for this in our mm-hmm. in our show notes for our listeners to find this also. But we always end. I know we're limited on time. We always end the podcast. We typically ask our guest what their favorite native plant is, but we decided to just change it up a little bit and ask you if you have a favorite insect. <laughs> wow. Uh, I mean, I have two children's asking which one is my favorite. <laughs> I, it's always – it's the, the simplest answer, yet hardest question. Yeah. The answer is depending on the day, I have a different one, and that's the children. Um, what is it today? Uh, what is it today? Um, I really like – oh, goodness. I mean, I love bumblebees. I just think they're just fantastic. I mean, they they are incredible. They can, they can pollinate uh, tomatoes, which um, honeybees can't. I think it's very important. And the other other things, onions that honeybees can't. Um, but they are incredibly intelligent. I mean, they can they can learn to count. They can be taught to play soccer. They they have a kind of form of consciousness where they will care for the young of others. They will give up their own sleep to care for the others in the hive. Um, they're kind of altruistic. Um, uh, you know, they have a kind of yeah form of consciousness that. You know, not on our level, not on a human level, but their kind of own kind of sense of consciousness that you wouldn't think of for such a kind of small creature, you know, with a tiny brain. Um, so, yeah, I really like bumblebees. I would give a special shout out to the Hercules moth, uh, the world's largest moth in uh, uh, northern Queensland in Australia. Uh, it's the size of a dinner plate. Uh, as a caterpillar, it's got the eyes on its backside so, to confuse predators. It's this huge thing, um, and it's, it amazes uh, school children when it's brought around to, yeah. to, <laughs> into classes. Um, so, yeah, if, you, if anyone wants to Google a Hercules moth and check it out, I encourage them to do so. Awesome. Fantastic choices. So we always end the show with a final thought. We, we will each take a turn, and, and you're our guest, so you go first. But we, we hand the floor over. You can pitch something, summarize, add something that we didn't talk about, but the, the floor is yours. Okay, yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I would say um, it's important for us to think about um, things we can do now to to address this issue rather than hope for some technological salvation, uh, which we often do uh, when we think about, you know, pandemics, we kind of wait for a vaccine or, or, you know, climate change, we hope for some machine that will suck CO2 from the atmosphere or something. Unfortunately, it's going to take some kind of hard work on our own part uh, and our government's part to, to deal with the insect crisis. Um, robot bees are not going to replace real bees. Uh, we're going to need to save the real thing. Uh, and so I would suggest um, doing all the things we've been talking about here in terms of what you can do in your own lives, in your own backyards to help foster those uh, those bees and other insects but also start, um, you know, pushing, you know, elected representatives and people in power to actually um, do the right thing by them. So that, those, are the, those are the things I feel hopefully people can take away from this. Awesome. Fantastic final thought. Tom, you want to go or yeah, you want I, me to go? I, I can go. And okay. It was, uh, I forgot all about what you wrote about robot bees <laughs> here too. That was just <laughs> the thing that we can solve things, uh, through, through robotics and which we can in a lot of cases. But, um, and I remember some of the, uh, I guess it's some of the tomato, like high tunnel, uh, farms across the country and well, across the world. They'll actually use like electric toothbrushes for the pollination because, uh, they can't get the bumblebees in or something like that. But, um, yeah, the big thing is you, you talk about agriculture a lot, and I'm a member of our, our New Jersey Farm Bureau, and uh, we have bumper stickers that say, like, no farms, no food. And then you see, like, if you ate today, thank a farmer, all, like, little taglines like that. And I think we have a, a, 
idea for a bumper sticker line now, Fran, where we can put like, if you ate today, thank an insect. (laughs) (laughs) If you're alive today, thank an insect. So yeah, that's awesome. That's a great final thought. Um, mine is, you know, when we started this journey, especially with the podcast, it, it's real easy. Uh, and I'm speaking for myself to be self-centered. You know, you wake up and you're like, what do I want? And then you, you kind of, your eyes open a little bit and you're like, all right, you know, what do, what do I want for my lawn or what do, what does my yard need? And you start thinking about all these interactions and that you're just a part of nature. You're a part of the food web. And how do you play your part and how do you help the other parts? I think today is a perfect example of widening that vision a little bit more mm-hmm. of what else is entailed and how you can play a part in it and how we affect affect this every day in the decisions we make. And it's all about decisions and, and making good ones. And, and hopefully sometimes it's making the best decision out of what you're faced with. So uh, this was very enlightening. Oliver, thank you so much. I, I think we could have probably talked to you easily for another hour because uh, there was a lot of questions we didn't get to. But our listeners can go out, like I said, and and pick up this book, and it's a fantastic read, and I think everyone will be happy with this. So, Thanks so much. Oh, no problem. Good. Yeah, so that's going to wrap us up for today. We hope you enjoy listening to Oliver Millman about his book, uh, The Insect Crisis, The Fall of Tiny Empires That Run the World. Um, you can visit his website, which is www.olivermillman.com. And Oliver, do you have a, a preferred place where people buy your book? Oh, good question. I mean, you can, uh, it's available via Amazon mm-hmm. uh, or uh, bookstore.org or um, several other outlets. So, yeah, awesome. um, wildly available and should be in some bookstores too. Yes, and we'll have links to, to those yep. outlets on our uh, on our uh, show notes as well. So um, with that, thank you for everyone for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pylons Nursery. Uh, we're giving a big thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their music wherever you consume your music. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, or uh, Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet. And uh, YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. We will play it on a future episode of The Buzz. Don't forget about our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. It, uh, it keeps growing and growing. So uh, you can get Native Plants Healthy Planet merch at www.nativeplantshealthyplant.com. Again, Fran and I don't take a dime from it. We basically take that money and give it to uh, some of the nonprofits that we've had on here that we feel are doing really good work. They're all doing great work, but yeah. it's we're, hard to we're able to, to sort through them all and pick out one or two. Yes. <laughs> we're able to give some money to every once in a while. So And you get to spread a great you're message. You're spreading a great message through your apparel and also uh, know that all the profits are going to to good recipients as well. Um, you can listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast at that same website, or you're probably going to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcasts. Uh, when you're there, if it's at all possible, leave a five-star review. And if you write a little message along with that five-star review, I give you a shout-out on our Buzz episodes. Um, I have a lot of fun doing that, and, and I do it's always nice to read flattering words about <laughs> ourselves. But the biggest thing is it helps uh, promote this message about planting native plants and saving our insects to a, a larger audience. Grow so, that circle larger. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Uh, coming up next week, we have a Buzz episode, so make sure you tune in. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.